بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له اشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد فان احسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وان شر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار uh, so today is the 10th and possibly the final lesson inshallah ta'ala on uh, this booklet which is on the subject of the virtues or the excellence of the kalima la ilaha illallah based around 40 ahadith 40 ahadith in the previous lesson in hadith number 31 uh, the hadith that we discussed was relating to people who will be removed from the hellfire and these people had various levels of iman of faith in their hearts so one has, for example, a barley seed's weight. Another one has a wheat grain's weight. And another one has, you know, like something very, very small, even smaller. So all of these people will be taken out of the hellfire. And we mentioned how this hadith, and there are numerous other hadith which are similar to this, they are a refutation of two groups of people. The first group of people are the Khawarij and the Mu'tazila. This group asserts that anyone who enters into hellfire will never ever be removed from it. And this is on the basis that they say a Muslim who commits a major sin, he becomes a disbeliever by way of that major sin. Because he has lost all of his faith. So for example, a believer who drinks, who fornicates, who gambles, who, you know, and so on and so forth. This person now, he has lost all of his iman, all of his faith. And he will remain eternally in the hellfire. However, in this hadith, we see that there will be people whom Allah will take out of the hellfire on the basis that they have something of Iman with them. On the other hand, this hadith that we mentioned, and there are, in fact there were numerous hadith which are like this, and I think there will still be more hadith which are like this. On the other hand, these are hadith, they refute those people who claim that anyone who says the kalima la ilaha illallah, it is impossible for him to enter the hellfire. <coughs> That is to say that a believer who says La ilaha illallah, then he has already completed his iman. His iman, his faith is already complete. And so no matter what he does, if he commits sins and things of that nature, then this will not affect his iman. And so therefore such a believer, such a, such a person, such a believer can never ever enter the hellfire. Now this view is, of, is, is obviously an extreme view on the other side because 
It is not like the, the, the mainstream view of the Murjia. They are the people who hold this view on the other side. So we have the Khawarij and the Mu'tazil on one side. And on this side we have the Murjia. Now the Murjia amongst them are various extremes. At the most extreme are the ones who say that anyone who says La ilaha illallah will never enter the hellfire. This is not true. It's a very extreme view. Um, but in any case, this hadith is a clear refutation of both groups of people, right? In the varying extremes that they might have amongst themselves. So this is the hadith that we mentioned, that we finished with in the previous lesson. And we said that there is a difference between Dukhul and Khulud. Dukhul al-Nar wal Khulud fin-Nar. Dukhul is to enter the hellfire. And Khulud is to remain in the hellfire eternally. So no believer, no believer who dies upon Iman will escape, uh, sorry, will, 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 will uh, remain in the hellfire forever. Right? Every believer, a genuine believer, who truthfully believed in the kalima and acted upon its requirements within the limits of his knowledge and ability, then this person will eventually be taken out of the hellfire, even if he was the most sinful of people. Right? So this is the correct view. So this was just a recap of the previous lesson. We're going to continue, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, today, lesson number 10 starts from this point onwards. And so this is hadith number 32. An Anas bin Malik, radiyallahu anhu, who narrates, and this is the long hadith of the Shafa'ah. It's a very lengthy hadith which is reported by Imam Muslim in his Sahih. So in this hadith, we see that the Messenger of Allah Wasallam. this is on the Day of Judgment now, on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, and this will be when the people have already been resurrected, they are standing, they are waiting, and they are, they are terrified uh, whilst they are standing and waiting anticipating their Lord to come and to, you know, so to begin the judgment. And this is where the first intercession of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu will, will, will take place. And so in this intercession, the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu he, he, he mentions in the hadith that I then, I will fall down in prostration. And then it will be said to me, O Muhammad, raise your head and speak. You will be heard and ask and you will be given and intercede and your intercession will be accepted. So I will say, فأقول, I will say to my Lord, uh, I will say, Oh my Lord, grant me permission with respect to anyone who said, لا إله إلا الله. And so Allah will respond, قَالْ لَيْسَ ذَاكَ لَكْ أَوْ قَالَ لَيْسَ ذَاكَ إِلَيْكَ وَلَكِنْ وَعِزَّتِي وَكِبْرِيَائِي وَعَظْمَتِي وَجِبْرِيَائِي لَأُخْرِجَنَّ مَنْ قَالَ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ So Allah will reply that this is not for you, or it is not entrusted, it is not for you. However, by my might and by my greatness and my mightiness, and my Jibriya, all of these are uh, words which are difficult to translate, but they are approximate in meaning. Allah's greatness, Allah's grandeur, His you know, uh, mightiness, mightiness and so on and so forth. 
I shall certainly take out from it, from the hellfire, the one who says, La ilaha illallah. So, from this hadith, and, and again, it is a very lengthy hadith, which then continues to discuss the people that are eventually taken out. From this portion of the hadith, there are numerous benefits that we can take from this. So, first of all, first of all obviously, the issue that we are discussing in this book is, clearly, it illustrates the virtue and the excellence of the kalima la ilaha illallah. And that even if a Muslim entered into the hellfire on account of sins which he committed, sins for which he had not made tawbah for, then because of the greatness of the kalima la ilaha illallah, he will be taken out. And of course, keep in mind that when we are speaking of people entering the hellfire, we are speaking of those people who died without having made tawbah. Genuine, sincere tawbah. Because if you make tawbah to Allah Azawajal, that sin is then erased. So we are speaking about people who committed sins, and they died without having made tawbah to Allah, and they died uh, whilst the trials and tribulations of life hadn't removed all of their sins. Right? So even the trials and tribulations like illnesses, calamities which afflicted them, which we know that they remove sin or they expiate sin, that person still died whilst having sins on his shoulders. So these are the types of people whom if Allah wills, He will forgive them. And if Allah wills, He will punish them. And if He punishes them and they enter the hellfire, because of the greatness of the kalima la ilaha illallah, because it is the truth which for which the heavens and earth were created, and it is a mighty word, then Allah will take them out of the hellfire. And He will take them out of the hellfire after all of the other means and ways have been exhausted. Right? So if you remember in previous lessons we said that Allah's mercy is vast and that there are many, many ways by which a person can remove Sins, by which sins are removed from him, which will either prevent him from hellfire or eventually take him out of hellfire. And we said that Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, he mentioned these means and ways that they are ten in number. Three of them come from the person himself, his own deeds, right? Which is making uh, istighfar, number one, making tawbah, number three, um, you know, his, his, righteous, his, his own righteous deeds. Uh, these are from his own deeds now. And likewise from the deeds of other people. Such as, for example, the dua of other people for him. Such as the funeral prayer and just normal dua. Or uh, righteous deeds that a person grants to the deceased. Because we know that a person can do righteous deeds like an Umrah, for example, or certain fasting and so on and so forth. And likewise, intercession that will take place on Yawmul Qiyamah. These are the deeds of someone other than the dead, or the, other than the person himself. So the intercession of the prophets and the angels and you know the righteous people, a person will benefit. So there's another three now, which are from the deeds of other people besides himself. And then thirdly, there are calamities, calamities which erase sins or remove sins. And those calamities are in this life or they are in the barzakh 
or they are in the hereafter. They will expiate sins. There's another three causes. And after all of these causes, there is nothing left except for the pure mercy of Allah Azza wa Jal. This is after all of the intercession and everything else. And there are people who will be taken out on account of that pure mercy of Allah Azza wa Jal. This is why we read in this hadith uh, that this is not for you. لَيْسَ ذَاكَ لَكْ أَوْ قَالَ لَيْسَ ذَاكَ إِلَيْكَ وَلَكِنْ وَعِزَّتِي وَكِبْرِيَائِي وَعَظْمَتِي وَجِبْرِيَائِي لَأُخْرِجَنَّ مَنْ قَالَ لَا إِلَهِ إِلَّا اللَّهِ So this is after all of the ways and means have been exhausted. Then Allah out of, out of His mercy and uh, you know, His forgiveness, He will take out a people from the hellfire. So this is point number one. It indicates the virtue and the excellence of La ilaha illallah. Secondly, from this hadith, we take obviously the, the affirmation of intercession, ash-shafa'ah. We believe in ash-shafa'ah, and we also indicated previously that the very concept of shafa'ah, the very occurrence of shafa'ah on the day of judgment, is also a refutation of those two groups of people, right? The khawarij and the mu'tazila, and likewise the murji'ah, because intercession takes place for the people who entered into hellfire, the sinners, the sinful people, the major sinners who entered into the hellfire. So when we affirm the intercession of the messenger of Allah Wasallam, the, there's various types of intercession he will have. Uh, and likewise, the, the intercession for people, for example, who, end, who, who deserve to enter the hellfire, there will be intercession to pre- prevent them from entering hellfire. And there will be intercession for people who have already entered the hellfire for them to be taken out of the hellfire. There's various types of intercession. So our belief in this intercession on the basis of these clear texts in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, because the Qur'an speaks of intercession and the Sunnah gives the details of that intercession, then this is clearly a refutation of the Khawarij and the Mu'tazil on one side and the Murji'ah on the other side. And this is alluded to in the Quran, Al Maqamul Mahmud, Al Maqamul Mahmud in the Quran, which is promised to the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. اللَّيْلِ فَتَحَجَّدْ بِهِ نَافِلَةً نَكَ عَسَى أَنْ يَبْعَثَكَ رَبُّكَ مَقَامًا مَحْمُودًا So strive in the night, meaning in prayer, نَافِلَةً نَكَ You know, voluntary prayer, make the hajjad. Perhaps that Allah will raise you, perhaps your Lord will raise you upon a praiseworthy station. And this is referred to by the Mufassireen as the station of intercession on the day of judgment. Thirdly, this hadith is an indication of the virtue and the excellence of the Messenger of Allah over all of the other prophets and messengers. Because he is the one who is given this praiseworthy station. All of the prophets, from Adam salam, Ibrahim salam, Musa salam, they will, they will, you know, uh, decline from this. Uh, when the people go to them and ask them, you know, on Yom Al Qiyamah, they will decline from this. So this is an indication of the excellence of the Prophet salam, over all of the other prophets and messengers. Also, what we see in this hadith is the fact. There's benefit number four that the messenger of Allah salam, had to seek permission. To make the intercession. And this is because intercession belongs only to Allah Azza wa Jal. 
We mentioned the ayah, قُلْ لِلَّهِ الشَّفَاعَةُ جَمِيعًا Say to Allah belongs all intercession. And no one has the right to intercede with Allah. No one has the right to argue for the benefit of someone else in front of Allah until Allah has given him permission. Right? This is unlike what happens in the world. In the world, when we see the kings of the world or the people of authority in the world, anyone, their ministers, anyone can come and, and, and you know, argue on behalf of anyone else. He does not need to ask permission. He does not, um, you know, he does not need to ask permission. This, this, you know, this, this is a kind of defective type of authority that the kings of the earth have. But Allah Azawajal, to him belongs all of intercession. No one can intercede. No one can argue on behalf of another on Yawmul Qiyamah until after Allah has given a person permission to do so. And the person for whom the argument is being made must also be someone whom Allah is pleased with. Meaning he must be a person of Tawheed. He died upon Tawheed. Not a person upon, you know, upon Shirk. Uh, worshipping others besides Allah. So this condition of, the, the, there are two conditions, we discussed them in previous uh, lessons, that first of all Allah has to give his permission, which is al-idhn, and secondly Allah must be pleased with the one who is doing the interceding and the one for whom the intercession is being made. Also from the benefits from this hadith is the excellence of making dua whilst in sujood. Whilst in sujood. And it is from the, the you know it is from those actions and from those situations wherein if you make dua, it is likely to be answered. It is very likely to be answered. And so sujood, whilst in sujood, is one of those numerous situations that we see in the in the sunnah which explain you know, the times or the situations in which dua is likely to be answered. Also from the benefits, benefit number six is the compassion of the Messenger of Allah uh, for his nation, his compassion, his feeling of mercy, his feeling of pity for his nation. All of this is indicated in this hadith because he's concerned about the people of major sin who are still the people of Tawheed. They are people of Tawheed. But they became overwhelmed by their desires, by their lusts, by you know whatever, uh, by the love of the world to fall into disobedience. Though they never invalidated their Islam, right? They remained upon Tawheed, but they fell, you know, their shortcomings, they fell into sin. And so the Messenger of Allah, he has pity and compassion and mercy, these types of feelings for them. And this is indicated clearly in the Hadith. Also from the benefits that we have in this hadith is uh, a number of attributes of Allah Azza wa Jal, Allah's Izzah, Allah's Kibriya, His Azma, His Jibriya. These are attributes of Allah Azza wa Jal, which mention His, His, His might, His majesty, His grandeur, His greatness, and so on and so forth. So the hadith is a hadith of the Sifat as well, or this portion of the hadith. And... Finally, obviously the great and vast mercy of Allah Azza wa Jal, uh, you know, which is which is indicated in this hadith.
by the fact that Allah will remove some of his, serv- his servants from the hellfire without any other reason, without any other cause, apart from his pure mercy. Just from his pure mercy alone. So this is the end of hadith number 32. We move now to hadith number 33. And this is connected to this hadith. And this is the famous hadith of Abu Dhar. رضي الله تعالى عنه. He says, أتيت النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم وعليه ثوب أبيض وهو نائم ثم أتيته وقد استيقظ. He said, I came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam whilst he was wearing a white thobe. He had a white thobe on. Whilst he was sleeping. So he was asleep. So they went back and then he came again afterwards. And by this time, the Prophet sallallahu had arisen, had awoken. So the Messenger of Allah sallam, he said to Abu Dhar, he said, مَا مِنْ عَبْدٍ قَالَ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ ثُمَّ مَاتَ عَلَى ذَلِكِ إِلَّا دَخَلَ الْجَنَّةِ So he said to Abu Dhar, والسلام, There is no servant who says, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ Then he dies upon that, except that he will enter paradise. Now listen to what Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu said. He said, وَإِنْ زَنَى وَإِنْ سَرَقَ So Abu Dhar, he said, even if he fornicates, even mean if he has illicit relations outside of marriage, even if he fornicates, even if he steals, so the messenger of Allah said, وَإِنْ زَنَى وَإِنْ سَرَقَ Then Abu Dhar repeated another second time now, وَإِنْ زَنَى قُلْتُ وَإِنْ زَنَى وَإِنْ سَرَقَ I said, what, even if he fornicates, even if he steals, and then the messenger of Allah, he replied again, وَإِنْ زَنَى وَإِنْ سَرَقَ Even if he fornicates and steals. And then I said, قُلْتُ وَإِنْ زَنَى وَإِنْ سَرَقَ So Abu Dhar repeated a third time now. And so the messenger of Allah replies, وَإِنْ زَنَى وَإِنْ سَرَقَ عَلَى رَغْمِ أَنْفُ أَبِي so the messenger of Allah Sallam, he replied, even if, he, even if he fornicates, and even if he steals, and then this phrase, which means, it's, it's a phrase which means, um, it means, may a person's nose be placed in the dust. Right, so it's it's like a statement that's made uh, to belittle someone. Right, so here the statement means yes, a person will still enter paradise, even if he fornicates, even if he steals, despite in spite of the nose of Abu Dhar. Right? It basically means irrespective of you know whether you like it or not like it. Right, it's a statement of belittlement. That's generally the the basic idea. So, from this hadith, there are some benefits. And you can see how, again, it's connected to the previous hadith about the major sinners and intercession and dukhul and khulud and so on and so forth. So, from the benefits we take from this hadith, uh, first of all, is 
the excellence of La ilaha illallah, again, because the one who says it, the one who expresses it sincerely and truthfully, then he will enter paradise. Right? If you say it sincerely and you die upon that, then you will enter paradise. Second benefit we take from this is, and you can see from this argument, not an argument, but if you can see from this discussion between the teacher and the student, the teacher is the messenger of Allah and the student here is Abu Dhar. And obviously he did not, or he perhaps did not comprehend, or maybe he was inquiring about the statement. And Abu Dhar was saying, what well, even if he steals, even if he fornicates, he will still go to paradise. And so when the messenger of Allah, when he, when he affirmed and established, yes, even if he steals, even if he fornicates, then what this means is, is from the principle that we take from this is, Adam, takfir, murtakibil kabira, which is that we do not make takfir, we do not expel the one who commits a major sin, from Islam, right? The one who drinks, the one who gambles, the one who fornicates, the one who steals, the one who cheats, the one who deals in the riba. Anyone who falls into any of these major sins, we do not and we cannot expel him from the fold of Islam. And to do so is from the deen of the khawarij and the mu'tazila. The khawarij, the modern day khawarij, like you have the followers of Sayyid Qutb and uh, you know Al-Qaeda, ISIS, those types of people. And since we this topic has been raised, let's just stay upon this topic and just discuss a, a number of uh, additional points here. This principle is firmly established in the creed of Ahlul Sunnati Wal Jama'ah, the creed of the Salaf. That we do not make takfir, we do not expel a Muslim, a believer, from Islam on account of a sin that he committed. Now, you will see that the Khawarij, the people of takfir, like Al-Qaeda, like ISIS and those people, sometimes these people of falsehood, they have a way of representing something to, in order to make it look as if they are not violating the principle, right? The principle is that we do not make takfir of a person who commits major sin so long as he does not declare his action to be lawful, right? This is the principle. This is stated by Imam al-Tahawi rahimahullah in his creed, right? Principle is this. If a person, for example, he drinks alcohol, and he says, I'm drinking alcohol because it's halal. Right? This person now is a disbeliever. He's a disbeliever not because he drank alcohol, but because he made halal something which Allah made haram. Right? So essentially, he's saying that it is from the deen of Allah that alcohol is halal. So he's basically declaring Allah and his messenger to be untruthful. Because they said it is haram. And he's saying it's from the deen that it's halal. So he, you know, this, this is the, the nature of his, of his disbelief. He's a kafir. 
Now, if a person never drank a single drop of alcohol, and he said alcohol is halal, well, this person is a disbeliever, even though he's never touched a single drop of alcohol, right? So this shows that what expels a person from Islam is not the commission of the major sin, but declaring it to be halal, right? So is this clear now? This is very clear. This is the principle of Ahlul Sunnah with respect to anything which is major sin, right? And major sins are things like fornicating, drinking, gambling, stealing, dealing in riba. These are from the most common, you know, wide, widespread types of sins that we that we see people tend to fall into. Lying, huh? Lying. Sorry. Lying. lying. Yes, lying. Lying. For lying as well. But the, these are the ones. They are. They are more. These are actions which entail a lot, a lot of corruption, uh, like riba in the society, fornicating, you know, gambling, um, murder, things like this. Yeah, lying as well. All of these are major sins, and they have their different levels of corruption that follow on from from, from them. Now, so the point being that we do not make the fear of any person. Unless he comes and he says, this is halal. Right? How do we know that someone has made something halal? Yeah. How do you know, for example, you see a Muslim walking down the road, he's got some you know, can in his hand, which is clearly alcohol, you can smell the alcohol. How do you know whether he's made it halal or not? How would you know that? Huh? He has to express, isn't it, right? Because even if he believes in his heart, let's say he's got the belief that, yes, actually, it's, it's, it's halal We're in the 20th century, and whatever reason he's got, and, you know, let's say he believes it, how would you still know that that's what he believes? How would you know that? Huh? You don't. That's true, isn't it? That's correct, isn't it? You don't know. Unless he verbally expresses I believe alcohol is halal in Islam it has to be ex- explicit there is no way for you to ever know that he is has considered drinking alcohol to be to be halal there's no way you can tell right is all of this clear now okay so what are some of the methods that the khawarij use in order to make in order to make takfir of sinful Muslims in general, but more specifically of the rulers. Because the Khawarij, their whole religion, is based about, based around making takfir of the rulers and trying to take power, and then claiming this is for the sake of religion, when in reality it's not. It's for the sake of worldly reasons. This is the reality of the Khawarij, right? In Islam... This band, this, this band of people known as the Khawarij, this is how they are characterized in the Sunnah. Right? They appear to be pious, righteous, speak the most righteous words, uh, you know, beautiful words, and you, you, know, you think they're the most pious, religious, religious of people, that they want khair and want goodness and whatever else. But really, they are people of the world. They are motivated by the world. And the Qur'an, when they read the Qur'an, isn't passed beyond this point here. And their prayer doesn't pass beyond this point here, right? Which means it's all fake piety. It's fake piety. Abu Qatada, 
all these people, Abu Hamza, right? This um, all of these khawarij that you see, deep down underneath, there are worldly motivations, right? That they are concealing, right? Maybe they got beaten in prison or something when they were in Egypt or Jordan or whatever else it was, right? And the whole resentment and hatred in their hearts, right? There's economic considerations, there are personal considerations, right? That's what's really deep down at the core of it all, right? They're jealous because of all the wealth that they don't have. And then on top of this, right, they put this layer of religion and piety and whatever else to make it look as if these people are motivated by the religion when they're not, right? This is the reality of all of these people. And that's why, uh, you know, this is a different topic now, that in the Sunnah you see why they have been treated the way they've been treated, right? Cast doubt upon their intentions, they should be fought and, you know, so on and so forth. But anyway, coming, coming, sticking to our discussion. So from the ways that these people use to get around this principle because they want to focus upon the rulers in particular is they say there's a difference between a sinful person who does not make istihlal of alcohol and between a person who habitually commits the sin. Right? So now they make a false distinction. They say that, yeah, you have some people who just, you know, every now and then they might commit a major sin. But what about the one who continuously, all the time is committing sin? This now is a proof that he's made, halal, made, it, made it halal. Is this principle correct? Is this principle correct? Can you say that a Muslim, for example, and you have Muslims like this in certain parts of the country. Let's say, for example, you might have Muslims who... You know, in some of the countries that were affected by communism, for example, and, you know, they, they tried to erase Islam from those lands, and so there's a lot of jahl in these countries, right? These people, they say, La ilaha illallah, they establish prayer, but it's just jahl, right? And, uh, and sins permeate the society, and these people are just born in an environment where there's just sin, right? So these people, they, uh, many of them might just be drinking habitually, and they drink from the age of 14, 15, 16, till they die at the age of you know, 60, 70, 80. All their life they're drinking. Never once do they drink believing that it is halal for them to drink. Right? They know they are sinful. Can we say that this person is a kafir? Can we say that this person has, has uh, made istihlal, has declared hal, halal uh, alcohol? Can we say that? Right? Can we make that judgment upon a person? No, this is, this is not possible. It's not possible. The only way you can know what a person is, is believing is if he actually expresses it. Right? So the khawarij, we see that these people, from them, and these khawarij are paid in different places, and from them in Saudi Arabia, some of the, the Qutbiyun, the, 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 the followers of Sayyid Qutb in Saudi Arabia, like this band of people, Salman al-Awda, Safar al-Hawali, Aid al-Qarin, there's a group of people in the, in the 90s who were upon... They were taught by Sayyid Qutb. They took these ideas from Sayyid Qutb. And they began to make statements like this in their cassettes. That, you know, they were saying the one who persists and the one who, you know, is all the time persisting in the sin. Do you think that he could be doing this except that he's made halal? What Allah has made haram? All of this is just emotional rhetoric coming from an ignoramus. 
That's all it is. Right? He's trying to make he's trying to make you believe that a persistent sinner is someone who's made the sin to be to be to be halal. Right? This is the same as the khawarij of the first times. And we know the hadith, you know the famous hadith of the man, habitual sinner, used to be called uh, Himar, donkey in the time of the messenger of Allah And, you know, his weakness that he had, he would be brought, he would be punished. And then, you know, another time he'd do it again, he'd be brought, he'd be punished. And when this was happening over and over again, one of the companions on one occasion, he said, may the curse of Allah be upon this man. And the messenger of Allah he told his companion off and said, do not, do not curse him. For indeed, he loves Allah and his messenger. Right? Which means that it is possible for a person to be sinful and have a weakness and, and persist in a sin. And at the same time, he can still be one who loves Allah and loves his messenger. Right? These are the things that the khawarij, the people, the people of Ba'at, the people of falsehood, you know, they don't want you to... They, 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 uh, because they do not, do not have fiqh of the religion... Um, or they pretend not to have fiqh of the religion because they follow their desires and have worldly motives, then you know the, these texts clearly clash with this principle. Now this is one. This is one shubha now, yeah? One shubha. So basically, we do not make the creed of any Muslim on account of a major sin he falls into unless he declares his action to be halal. Right. What are the ways these people use in order to bypass this principle? Number one, they try to distinguish between a sin every now and then, and between a person persisting habitually upon a sin. This distinction is false, it is batil. Second, is they say, and, and again, this is where they target the rule is specifically, they say, well, look at certain countries and you see that there is alcohol, and there is usury, there is riba, and because it exists in these countries, there must be legislation to allow it. And that legislation means that they have declared it to be halal. They have declared it to be halal. This is now a second shubha. Right? And they're saying, therefore, these rulers have declared it to be halal. Why? Because they are regulating the consumption of alcohol, or they are regulating the use of, uh, the, the, the practice of usury interest, right? Is this a sound argument? Okay, let me give you an example. Let's say there's a person called Zaid. Zaid realizes that basically, he can earn money by the sale of alcohol. He's a Muslim, right? He knows it is haram. He knows it is haram. But his argument is, I know it's haram, I know I'm sinful, but at the end of the day, I want to make money. And I've got to make money, right? And this, 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 these, uh, this is not like uh, a theoretical example I'm giving you. These are real examples, and you probably know many, many people, that these situations have confronted Muslims for a long, long time. People come from abroad, settle in this country, they want to find a way, they're not really practicing really, and say, okay, let me sell alcohol to, to non-Muslims or whatever, right? They know it's haram, they know it's haram. They're not saying it's halal, but they're just finding a way <coughs> to make money. Has this person become a disbeliever? 
Has he become a kafir just because he's going to sell alcohol? So, so what if he believes that um, selling it to kafir is not right? Huh? No, but that's that's uh, that, that, that's just a mistaken belief, right? He's not saying he's not saying yes, it's halal in Islam to sell alcohol to whatever. He's saying he's more from the angle. Well, I might as well sell it to non-Muslims. I know I can't sell it to Muslims. I'll sell it to non-Muslims, right? Maybe it's just like some reasoning he's got in his head, but it's not. You know, he's not necessarily saying it's halal in Islam. Okay, now let's take the argument further now, because I want you to understand the argument of how these people, how their minds work, right? The argument is, when they apply it to the rulers, what they are saying about the rulers is, that because the ruler has rules which regulate the, pre- the, the consumption of alcohol, this now means that they have declared it to be halal. Right? Let's go back now to the, the sinful Muslim, this person called Zaid. Zaid now, he opens up his off-license. And he realizes that, you know, because of um, increased business, he needs to employ some people to sit at the counter, to stock the shelves. So now basically he employs two or three people. And when he employs them, he's now got to regulate, basically he's got to regulate the, the whole operation, right? So there are rules and laws about, for the employees, when they come in, when they leave, um, you know, there's various other rules of operation for this business, right? If he implements all of these like regulations for his business, does that mean he's made alcohol selling to be halal? Is that the same as making alcohol halal? Still, still, at this point, is it enough to say he's made halal the selling of alcohol? Yes or no? No. Because still, he can do all of this while still believing it is haram. Right? Just the fact that there are regulations in operation, and even if he complies with the regulation of the authorities, for example, because you're not allowed to sell alcohol at certain times, past a certain time, as far as I'm aware. I don't know if those laws still, still operate after 11, or whether they might have changed them, I don't know. <coughs> even if he agrees with all of these regulations, right, he's sticking now to the qawaneen of selling alcohol. Does, is this now a proof that he's made halal what Allah made haram? No. Yes or no? no? No. It still doesn't make it, make, you know, express his belief until he physically expresses, yes, I believe alcohol is halal. Until you hear that from him, you cannot declare him to be a disbeliever on account of a sin. Right? Let me give you another example. A person who robs and steals. Is robbing and stealing halal? Yes or no? Okay. When a thief, an organized thief, you know that organized theft requires principles, uh, best practices, um, you know, these are all like, if you like, qawaneen. These are like principles of robbing banks, for example, or whatever. There are certain principles related to that that you have to abide by. Right? Just by abiding by those principles and best practices, does that mean that you've made stealing to be halal? Now, is that enough for you to say that this thief has made stealing to be halal? Is it or not? No. 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 It's only until he says, yes, stealing is halal, can you say, this now is major kufr. Right? In the same way, 
unfortunately, some of the Muslim lands, as we know, there are things like alcohol, there are things, there are things like, um, you know, uh, riba, things of that nature. People, Sorry? So some people say that my, my, uh, I have got a fatwa that I can get a mor- one mortgage. Okay, yeah, but that's different though. That's, 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 you know, incorrect fatwa and a person acting upon knowledge which is incorrect. And it's got nothing to do with istihlal for, from that person's point of view, meaning the person who's acting upon that, you know, uh, incorrect uh, fatwa. So that's a different topic altogether. But, so, what the point I'm, paying, I'm saying here is that some of the rulers, they might say, okay, we're just going to allow uh, alcohol uh, for tourists, Right? So when the tourists, non-Muslim tourists, come in our countries, we'll you know, build up new areas outside of the residential areas where the Muslims live. And let's generate new you know, tourist areas where we'll build hotels and things like that. And we'll just let them have the alcohol and we'll regulate it and whatever. Is this evidence that they've made halal what Allah made haram? Can we take that action and say, can we, can we do that? No. Even if we disagree and even if we say this is sinful and even if you know, we, 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 we can't agree with this, right? But can we say this now is major kufr? No. Until a ruler comes and he says, alcohol is halal, therefore we will sell it in our country. No. Because this is not the angle where, 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 from, from which this is taking place. Right? And the same with riba. Same with riba. If, for example, a Muslim ruler allows a foreign bank, for example, to come and operate in the country. Have they made riba halal? Have they said, yes, riba is halal? No. Even though we don't, even though this would, this would be, you know, something not, uh, it's not good, we don't accept it. But can we say now that this has now been made, a riba has been made halal? No. But you see, this reasoning is the reasoning of the khawarij. Because they are ignorant of the religion. And they use texts out of their proper places. So anyway, uh, so, so two basic doubts, two shubuhat. Number one, you know, persisting and committing a, a, a major sin. They say that this is not the same, this now is istihlal. Because it's a proof that he's treating it to be halal. How can it not be? All of this is emotional nonsense. There's no knowledge in this at all. Right, and the second is that because a person has rules and regulations to regulate a major sin, this now is a proof that they've made it to be halal. This also is incorrect, right? Like if I said, if if a father says to his son, "My son, I want you to steal, and I want you to steal on a certain day of the week, and you must make sure that you do this, this, and this, and this, this, and this, and use this, this, and this, whatever," and he gives him all these guidelines for everything. Does this now mean that this, that this father has made stealing to be halal? Just because he's giving him guidelines? No. Does not mean that he's made it to be halal. To make something halal is something that a person has to express. Because it is a belief. He has to express it and say it. The action itself cannot be an indicator that he's made a major sin to be halal. So this is very, very important for us to understand. Because uh, the khawarij... As we said, you can see clearly that most of the people whom they brainwash into following them are ignorant youth, are the young and the foolish-minded who have little knowledge. 
and they fill them with emotional rhetoric and they take current events, they take calamities and disasters and things which are taking place and non-Muslim aggressions against, you know, Muslim nations. And from all of this, like, very emotional, uh, these, these are very emotional things which you can quite easily get Muslims worked up around. Right? They take these things and they channel all of their hatred and anger and rage and enmity and they direct it towards the rulers. Right? And then they entice these people, these ignorant people, and bring them into you know, their, their evil ideology and then direct them to, the, to their own ends. So it's important for us to understand uh, these, these doubts that these people have because they are very, very dangerous and they are very, very uh, emotional, very, very appealing. But underneath them, there is just, it is just a falsehood. So point number two that we see from this hadith, that Abu Dhar, he said, in zana, in sarak, what even if he fornicates, even if he steals, and the messenger replied, even if he fornicates, even if he steals. So this shows that we do not make the fear of the one who commits major sins. Benefit number three is that a major sinner will not remain in the hellfire forever. Because this clearly this is the meaning of the hadith. That whoever says La ilaha illallah and dies upon that, he will enter paradise. Meaning, he will eventually enter paradise even if he is a major sinner. So therefore, a major sinner will not remain eternally in the hellfire. Also from the benefits is that we cannot... We cannot say about any specific individual that he is a person of the hellfire. Right? We cannot say about any Muslim, even if he is a sinful Muslim, we cannot say that he will enter hellfire. No one has the right to say that. Right? For example, if you have a Muslim, you know that you know he's habitually been drinking or he commits certain sins, but he's a Muslim upon Tawheed. Right? But he's a sinful person, and then he dies. You cannot say even if you knew that he does not make tawbah, you cannot say he is a person of the hellfire. Why is this? Because, as we mentioned before, that a major sinner who meets Allah without having repented from his sins, he will not automatically go to the hellfire. As the khawarij say, who deny the intercession, and who deny that Allah will, you know, he will not remain in hellfire forever. Right? And this is because, as we said, Allah will either forgive a servant for all of his sins from his pure mercy, or he will punish a servant and then eventually take him out. Right? So whether a person enters hellfire or not, a person is under the Mashia of Allah Under the Mashia. For that reason, we cannot say that any sinful Muslim who dies, that he will be in the hellfire. This is unlawful for us to say that. So a person may either be forgiven or he will be punished. If he is punished, then Allah will eventually take him out of the hellfire. So on, on both of these, they are a refutation of the, of the, of the Khawarij and the Mu'tazila. Also, um, 
we see that any person who dies, the condition is that he dies upon La ilaha illallah, he has to die upon this kalima. If he dies whilst having invalidated this kalima, then he will not be from the people of paradise. Right? So, uh, this comes back to the issue of Tawheed and the Nawaqid, the things which invalidate a person's Tawheed. Right? So there are many people who ascribe to Islam. A magician, for example, who falls into magic, right? And he's worshipping the devils as part of his magic. This person is a kafir. He will not, he's not from the people of La ilaha illallah because he dies upon disbelief by virtue of this act. And likewise, those people who invoke the saints and worship them and sacrifice to them and you know, give them the actions of major, uh, the, the major actions of worship which belong only to Allah, then this person has invalidated his kalima La ilaha illallah. So you have to die upon the kalima La ilaha illallah. Also from the benefits in this hadith is an indication, it alludes to the issue of dying upon having a good end. Husnul Khatima. Right? To die upon a good end. That your life is sealed upon righteous deeds rather than dying upon fornication and stealing and things like that. Die upon a good end. So the hadith is hinting and alluding to that meaning. And also from the final benefit that we take from this is it is mustahab to wear white. To be clothed in white. Because we see in another hadith, the messenger of Allah he said, خَيْرُ ثِيَابِكُمْ أَلْبِيَاضُ فَكَفِّنُوا فِيهَا مَوْتَاكُمْ وَأَلْبِسُوهَا أَحْيَاءَكُمْ Reported by Ibn Majah and Shaykh al-Bani declared to be sahih. So the best of your, th- of your clothings are those which are white. So shroud your dead in them, in it, and make your living to wear them. You know, the, the, the white garment. And also finally, the benefit from this is that whenever a student has a difficulty in understanding or grasping something, then he can relate it back to his teacher or to his sheikh, to his teacher, um, and to confirm and, and clarify the, you know, what he's actually saying and what he actually means. So this is the end of hadith number 32. And you know the remaining series of hadith, we will uh, bring them all. They are mostly short hadith now, inshallah ta'ala, uh, very similar, and we'll go through them very, very quickly in order to conclude our, our lesson. So hadith number 34 from Uthman, radiallahu anhu, who said that the Messenger of Allah said, Man mata wa huwa ya'lam. مَنْ مَاتَ وَهُوَ يَعْلَمْ أَنَّهُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ دَخَلَ الْجَنَّةِ رَهُ الْمُسْلِمِ مَنْ مَاتَ وَهُوَ يَعْلَمْ Whoever dies whilst he knows, he has knowledge that none has the right to be worshipped except Allah, he will enter paradise. You can see in this hadith the condition of ilm, right? <coughs> the kalima لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ has, has shurud. And here we see an indication of ilm. The one who dies whilst he knows that there is none which has a right to be worshipped except Allah will enter paradise. So from this hadith, there are some benefits. Uh, first of all, that uh, the one who dies upon la ilaha illallah will enter paradise. And secondly, it indicates one of the shar, uh, one of the shurut, one of the conditions of the kalima, which is ilm. Right? So you must have knowledge of what you are professing. You can't be ignorant of what la ilaha illallah means. Because la ilaha illallah requires from you action. 
right? It has requirements. And to understand those requirements, you must have knowledge of what it is you are saying, what meaning it is that you are expressing, right? So this is one of the conditions of La ilaha illallah. So we can see that in the sunnah, there are many hadiths that we've covered now from the beginning to this point. Some of them mention ikhlas, some of them mention ilm, some of them mention yaqeen, some of them mention sidq, right? You can see clearly that there are the conditions, seven conditions of la ilaha illallah mentioned throughout these hadith. Hadith number 35 is the statement of Abu Huraira, is the hadith of Abu Huraira, radiallahu anhu, qala rasulullahi sallallahu sallam, sallallahu alayhi sallam, أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وأني رسول الله لا يلقى الله بهما عبد غير شاك فيهما إلا دخل الجنة. The Messenger of Allah said, reported by Muslim that hadith, I testify that none has the right to be worshipped except Allah and that I am the Messenger of Allah. This is the Messenger saying this. No servant meets Allah with these two, meaning these two testifications, without being having any doubt in them, except that he will enter into paradise. So, from this, the benefit we can see from this clearly, first of all, the virtue of La ilaha illallah, and that the one who says it will enter into paradise. And secondly, more, uh, secondly, we see that here he said, without being in doubt, not having any doubt. Right? So this now is the condition of yaqeen, being certain about the meaning of la ilaha illallah, and in the truth of that meaning, that none has the right to be worshipped except Allah alone. So this is also from the conditions of la ilaha illallah. Also what the hadith indicates is the connection between tawheed and risalah. Right? The testimony that none has a right to be worshipped except Allah is connected to the testimony that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Right? So the messengership and the tawheed are both connected because we know one, the tawheed, by way of the other, which is the risala. And there's no way for us to know the details of that except by way of the risala. So the two are binding, they are connected to each other. That's hadith number 35. Hadith number 36 is from Abu Huraira, radiallahu anhu, in a lengthy hadith uh, in which the Prophet ﷺ, he sent Abu Huraira and he gave him his two shoes. He gave his two shoes to Abu Huraira and sent him. And he said, مَنْ لَقَيْتَ مِنْ وَرَاءَ هَذَا الْحَائِطِ يَشْهَدُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ مُسْتَيْقِنًا بِهَا قَلْبُهُ فَبَشِّرْهُ بِالْجَنَّةِ he said to him, whomever you meet beyond this wall. So he gave him his shoes and said, whomever you meet beyond this wall, who testifies that none has a right to be worshipped except Allah, whilst his heart has certainty regarding it, then give him glad tidings of paradise. Number of things, first of all, that the one who testifies none has a right to be worshipped except Allah alone, is from the people of paradise with the condition of yaqeen. Because he said, the one who is mustaqinan biha, qalbuh, whose heart has yaqeen. This now is the condition of yaqeen for the kalima. And also from the benefits is Abu Huraira, radiallahu anhu, was, was eager for goodness to go and convey goodness to the people. 
And thirdly, it indicates that the messenger of Allah gave Abu Huraira his two shoes and told him to go and inform the people so that when the people saw Abu Huraira and they saw the two shoes, they could be sure that he's come from the messenger of Allah with this news. So this is a means of basically uh, uh, ensuring that trust is placed in the, in, in the conveyor of the information. Right? The source of information is the messenger of Allah He wants people to trust that what Abu Huraira is going to convey actually came from him. So he gave him something which he can carry by which the people can know that yes, he indeed has come from the messenger of Allah because he has his shoes in his hand. So this is what we call like tawthiq, meaning it is, it is to, um, to give credibility to a report so that it is you know, proving the truthfulness of the one who is, who is bringing it. So we take that from the hadith as well. Hadith number 37, hadith of Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, radiyallahu anhu, qal, qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, qala Rasulullah sallallahu man wara'akum, annahu man shahida an la ilaha illallah, sadiqun biha dakhal al-jannah. So the messenger of Allah sallallahu said, have good tidings, and give good tidings to those who are behind you, meaning to those of your families who are behind you, whom you've left behind, to those who are your dependables and uh, you know whatever, that whoever testifies that none has a right to be worshipped except Allah, sadiqun biha, whilst he is truthful with it, then he will enter paradise. So here now we have sidq. So we have ilm, we have yaqeen, we have sidq, and uh, we, you know, we, we have numerous other, we said, conditions that were mentioned in previous, previous texts, like ikhlas, khalisan, min qalbihi, sadiqan, min qalbihi. All of these we see coming together in, in, in these texts. Reported by Ahmed and Tabarani, declared authentic by Shaykh al-Albani, rahimahullah ta'ala. So from this hadith benefits, number one, the excellence of la ilaha illallah, and a person is from the people of paradise, and that the messenger of Allah Sallam, he uh, gave glad tidings and he told his companions to give glad tidings to those who, you know, their families, which is the glad tiding to the people of Tawheed, that they will enter paradise. Or they will eventually enter paradise if they are first punished in the hellfire. So either way, it is still a bushra, it is still a good tidings, one way or the other. Right? If it is entry to paradise without hellfire, or eventual entry, uh, entry into paradise after being in hellfire. Also, uh, a sidq is a condition of the kalima la ilaha illallah, which indicates that the hypocrites are disbelievers, and their statement of la ilaha illallah is not acceptable to Allah, the munafiqoon, the hypocrites, because they are mukaddibun. They are liars inside, whereas outwardly they claim to have uh, faith, and they are present in every time, in every era, these munafiqoon, and they have certain signs that you see from them, that they are the munafiqoon, that they are traits and characteristics. So, this is hadith number 37, hadith number 38, from Jabir, radiyallahu anhu, anna rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, qal, ba'athahu faqal, so from Jabir, who said that the messenger of Allah dispatched him, and he said to him, idhab, fanadi fin nas, أَنَّ مَنْ شَهِدَ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ 
mu'minan aw mukhlisan dakhal al-jannah he said to him go and call out to the people among the people that whoever testifies that none has a right to be worshiped except Allah as a believer with iman or mukhlisan one who is sincere with ikhlas he will enter into paradise reported by muslim and a similar hadith from abdullah bin umar radiyallahu anhu from the prophet sallallahu who said man shahida an la ilaha illallah dakhala al-jannah whoever testifies that none has a right to be worshiped except allah will enter paradise so the first hadith of jabir was from reported by muslim and the second hadith of abdullah bin umar was reported by al-bazzar and declared authentic by sheikh al-albani rahimahullah ta'ala what do these two hadiths tell us well basically that whoever makes the shahada with ikhlas ikhlas is now a condition that a person must be sincere when he expresses his kalima and such a person will enter into <coughs> paradise so from these texts we can see ilm yaqeen sidq ikhlas all of these conditions are being mentioned so that was hadith number 38 39 and finally we come <coughs> to the last hadith in this compilation of 40 hadith and it is the hadith of Mu'adh bin Jabal radiyallahu anhu who said qala rasulullah man kana akhiru kalami min ad-dunya la ilaha illa allah dakhala al-jannah reported by imam ahmed abu daud al-hakim and declared authentic by sheikh al-bani Mu'adh bin Jabal said عنه, that the messenger of Allah said whoever's last words whoever's final speech or last words from the world is la ilaha illallah he will enter paradise he will enter paradise so from this there are two benefits that we can take number one that any person who departs from the dunya and he dies upon la ilaha illallah expressing the kalima la ilaha illallah his last words being la ilaha illallah with him having knowledge of the meaning of what he is saying sincere in that being truthful in that having yaqeen in that this person will be a person of paradise and for that reason it indicates that it is recommended highly recommended for us that any person to whom death is close or has descended that we encourage that person to say the kalim of tawhid la ilaha illallah and uh, as occurred in the previous hadith we've covered this before laqinu mautakum la ilaha illallah encourage your the ones who are on the verge of death to say la ilaha illallah and although we say this a person should realize and understand that your ability to say la ilaha illallah at the point of death is tied to the extent to which you were a person who abided by its requirements to the extent that you enacted tawhid in your life to that extent will it be easy for you at the point of death to say la ilaha illallah this is a matter of of reality and we know from evidence of testimony gathered by the people of knowledge and by the experience of people that there are many many people who for example may have had a habitual sin or they may have had you know something that the point of death they struggle to say la ilaha illallah 
And all they remember is perhaps the sin that they were engaged in. Right? They have difficulty in in coming out with this with this kalima. Right? So the ability to say this kalima is tied to the extent to which this kalima was great in your heart and to the extent to which it was manifest in your deeds and your actions. Also from the benefits, the second benefit is that and this is what we take from all of this is that innamal a'malu bil khawatim. Indeed actions are in accordance with the endings. Right? Your 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 actions will be based upon that which you died upon. So if that which you died upon was the kalima la ilaha illallah, firm upon it, sincere upon it, truthful upon it, no doubt, not doubting, right? Then all of your actions will 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 be taken in light of that. You you will um, your actions are basically judged on the basis of what is it that you died upon. amalu bil So with all of that, uh, a person should be eager that his final words should be the kalima la ilaha illallah. And because it is a reason and a cause for him entering into paradise. And most importantly, from everything that we've discussed, a person should realize that it is not just the speech la ilaha illallah. Because as we've seen in previous lessons that the kalima la ilaha illallah has a ma'na, has a meaning. It has a muqtada, which, which is a requirement from the meaning. It has arkan, it has two pillars, and it has shurut, it has conditions. And we covered this previously in a previous series of lessons. You can refer back to them in detail. Specifically, we covered the, the, the meaning of the kalima la ilaha illallah with these four things, the ma'na, the muqtada, the, the arkan, and the shurut. That this is what we are referring to. A believer must have knowledge of all of these affairs so that he is someone who, you know, he believes in the meaning and he acts upon its requirements. And all of iman revolves around this, this affair. So this really brings us to the end of our discussion of this book. And if you allow me, I know we've gone slightly over the time, but all we have is some excellent lines of poetry from Al-Hafidh Al-Hakami. Uh, just seven or eight lines of poetry, if you allow me to read them and try to translate them, they basically summarize or they bring together a lot of the things that we've uh, discussed. And so this, this uh, poetry uh, is taken from the excellent work of uh, Al-Hafidh Al-Hakami Rahimahullah Ta'ala Sullam Al-Wusul Ila Ilm Al-Usul Fi Tawheedillah Wa Ittiba'ir Rasul Fantastic work all in poetry form, which brings together the essence of the belief of the people of the Sunnah and the Jama'ah, the followers of the Salaf. So let me just mention these eight or nine lines of poetry. So he says, regarding the Kalima La ilaha illallah specifically, Man qalaha mu'taqidan ma'naha wa kana amilan bi muqtadaha. So he says, He's referring to the person who will be successful with the kalima la ilaha illallah. So he says, مَنْ قَالَهَا مُعْتَقِدًا وَعْنَاهَا The one who says it, whilst believing in its meaning, وَكَانَ عَامِلًا بِمُقْتَضَاهَا And the one who is acting by its requirements, فِي الْقَوْلِ وَالْفِعْلِ وَمَاتَ مُؤْمِنًا يُبْعَثُ يَوْمَ الْحَشْرِ 
najin amina. So the one who spoke it whilst believing in this meaning and acted upon its requirements in speech and in deed. So the kalima la ilaha illallah has requirements from you in speech and in deed. If you bring those requirements in speech and deed, right, and you die as a believer, وَمَاتَ مُؤْمِنًا يُبْعَثُ يَوْمَ الْحَشْرِ نَاجٍ amina. That person will be raised on the day of judgment, najin. He will be delivered, amina, and he will be safe. He will be secure. فَإِنَّ مَعْنَاهَا الَّذِي عَلَيْهِ دَلَّتْ يَقِينًا وَحَدَتْ إِلَيْهِ أَنْ لَيْسَ بِالْحَقِّ إِلَاهًا يُعْبَدْ إِلَّا الْإِلَاهُ الْوَاهِدُ الْمُنْفَرِدُ For indeed the meaning, the, its meaning, its meaning which it has indicated, the kalima, the meaning which this kalima has indicated out of certainty and which it guides towards is that there is no deity that is worshipped in truth except the one unique deity. <coughs> this is the meaning. So basically, anything that is worshipped besides Allah is worshipped in falsehood. And the only deity that is worshipped upon truth is Allah Azawajal. إِلَّا الْإِلَاهُ الْوَاحِدُ الْمُنْفَرِدُ بِالْخَلْقِ وَالْرِزْقِ وَالْتَدْبِيرِ جَلَّ عَنِ الشَّرِيكِ وَالنَّذِيرِ so, the only one worshipped in truth is the one, Al-Ilah, Al-Wahid, Al-Munfarid. The one deity who is unique with khalq, with creating. Only he is the creator. Wal-Rizq, only he is the one who provides. Wal-Tadbir, only he controls and regulates the whole of the creation and everything therein. From the sun, the moon, the stars, the rain, everything else. You know, he subjected it for the use of mankind. Jalla anish shariq wan nadir. He is lofty, far above and beyond, and majestic above and beyond, having a partner and having an, uh, um, an aider or a supporter. A partner or, or uh, an equal or, uh, you know, one who is equal. Wa bi shurutin sab'atin padquyidat. And this kalima has been restricted and qualified with seven conditions. وَفِي نُسُوسِ الْوَحِي حَقًّا وَرَدَتْ And in the text of Revelation, these conditions in truth have been revealed. Right? So these conditions that we keep speaking about, knowledge, yaqeen, qabool, um, intiyad, mahabba, sidq, ikhlas, and so on and so forth. He's saying that all of these in the text of Revelation, in truth, they have been mentioned. And you can see that clearly from the text that, we, that we've been discussing. فَإِنَّهُ لَمْ يَنْتَفِعْ قَائِلُهَا بِالنُّطْقِ إِلَّا حَيْثُ يَسْتَقْمِلُهَا For indeed, the one who says it, the kalima la ilaha meaning, meaning the kalima, will not benefit just by expressing it, except when he completes and perfects these conditions. Right? The seven conditions. And then he mentions them. Al-ilmu, knowledge. Wal-yaqeen, certainty. Wal-qabool, which is acceptance, meaning he accepts the fact that he has to act and abide by the kalima. Wal-inqiyad, which is then he complies in his action with the kalima. 
فدري ما أقول so four conditions العلم واليقين والقبول والانقياد know what I'm saying to you والصدق والإخلاص والمحبة and truthfulness and sincerity and love وفقك الله لما أحبه may Allah grant you success in whatever he loves so this is the end of the the portion from the the poetry from al hafiz al hakimi rahimahullah ta'ala and it's a nice summary of the whole risala of 40 hadith that we've been through and with that we conclude this series of lessons um jazakumullah khairan for having the patience to uh, sit uh, through all of this may allah azza make this of uh, benefit to us and to value this kalima and to uh, root this kalima into our hearts and the hearts of those who our who are our dependents from our families and children and this kalima the parable of this kalima in the quran in surah ibrahim is like the tree the goodly tree which has firm roots firmly rooted in the ground and you know it reaches reaches the sky and it gives its fruits this is the parable of the kalima of Tawheed in the Quran. And so, uh, and this kalima, a person who dies upon this, and act, who acts upon it, dying upon it, then Allah will give him, uh, as we see in, 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 uh, in the verses which follow, يُثَبِّتُ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا بِالْقَوْلِ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ That Allah will give uh, those who uh, those who believe a firm you know he will give them firmness with a firm statement in the life of this world and the hereafter and this is the kalima allah will give you firmness in the questioning of the grave so in this life and in the hereafter which is in in, in the grave as well so with that we conclude the series of lessons uh, and we'll start something new inshallah ta'ala uh, in the next time that we meet up walhamdulillahi rabbil alamin wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in in fact the next lessons that we'll do inshallah ta'ala is just a series of lessons which will be a continuation of lessons which are started at the uh, recent conference which is uh, the methodology of the salaf or the methodology of the quran in establishing the tawheed of allah so in, in, there will be probably three or four lessons, and in those three or four lessons, we will explain how the Qur'an argues for the rububiyah of Allah and for the uluhiyah of Allah, His right to be worshipped. Like what are the rational arguments? What, how is Allah inviting a person to use his reason to realize and know that there is only one Rabb who deserves to be worshipped alone, exclusively, and how he is you know, has uh, no deficiencies and how he has absolute perfection, kamal. Right? Because in the Quran, the Quran is making you think, is giving you parables, is making you reflect, and is giving you arguments of reason as to why worshipping him alone is the truth and why worshipping others is falsehood and why he is the possessor of absolute perfection and that no deficiency can approach him. There are arguments in the Quran which are like that. And all of this aids us in... Um, having yaqeen about Tawheed being the truth. So those lessons inshallah ta'ala, uh, because a number of people requested that we try to finish that whole series, so this is a good opportunity and it sticks, it keeps in line with the theme of, of this book as well, to continue uh, with that topic inshallah ta'ala. So 
the next series of lessons, perhaps there will be four or five lessons long at the most, hopefully we'll uh, discuss that topic inshallah ta'ala wa jazakumullahu khairan.